Zion Baptist Church, we celebrate your presence here today with us. Enjoy the worship service as you sit back and listen to the singing as it gives inspiration to your soul and then the preaching of the word of God as it gives instruction to your soul. Be blessed as God has a word for you today. Tragedies are commonplace. All kinds of diseases, people are slipping away. Economies down, people can't get enough pay. As for me,
are again at the third Sunday, and this is an opportunity for us, of course, to share with our children in the children's moment. So if you would, gather your children around this virtual space so we can share with them from the word of God that they may be blessed as well in this children's moment. Today, as we share in God's word, we are moving toward the Thanksgiving season, or better said, probably the Thanksgiving day, but I hope that we are already in the Thanksgiving season. And I want our children to understand that Thanksgiving is not just about eating great turkey and eating great potatoes and eating cranberry sauce and the whole nine yards, but there's a real more pointed purpose of Thanksgiving. And so young people, from the Bible, we're gonna read Psalm 100, verse four and five. Psalm 100, verse four and five. And here is what it says. Enter his gates with thanksgiving, go into his courts with praise, Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good. His unfailing love continues forever. And his faithfulness continues to each generation. So young folk, here's what I want you to think about. Don't wait until Thanksgiving Day to recognize that you should be thankful. But every day is an opportunity for you to celebrate thanksgiving to God. Not just for the food that God gives you, and I'm certainly you're thankful to that, and the clothes that God gives you, and you're thankful to that, and the school that you get to go to and the friends you get to share with and all of the toys, all of the wonderful things that you get to enjoy. Be thankful for that. But I want you to also be thankful for your mother and your father, your grandmother or your grandfather, the person who is responsible every day for making sure that you are well taken care of. Listen to what the Bible says. Enter into the space of God with thanksgiving. That means every morning when you wake up, give God thanks that he gave you the breath of life again and you have once again entered into the space of God's existence and that's right here where you get to see the people that you love and the people that you care for and the people who love and care about you. So thank God, says the Bible, with thanksgiving. Give God praise. That just simply means, Lord, thank you for all of your blessings that you give to me. Because God gives you his loving kindness and every generation he passes his love and his grace and his protection and his strength on from generation to generation. And now you are the receiver of God's divine love. So thank him for being so good to you and your family. Will you do that for me? And thank your parents, your grandparents, whoever it is, 
that helps take care of you every day, give God thanks for them because that's God's blessing unto you as well. Amen? Amen. This is Pastor Murphy saying, be blessed and remember, even though you may be a child, you're yet big and strong in the eyes of God. Amen. They said I wouldn't make it They said I wouldn't be here today They said I wouldn't amount to anything But I'm glad to say That I'm on my way And I'm growing more But now they've gone astray. But I'm still holding on. I'm still holding on. I'm still.
Zion, so glad to be with you again. Glad you've joined us in this time of worship and celebration as we get into the word of God. I want to draw your attention this morning, if you will, to Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is going to be our text this morning. We've been preaching through a series of sermons entitled Living Out Loud, Life According to the Psalms. And in the previous week, we have been blessed to be able to share with you what's defined as the blessed life from Psalm 103, verses 1 through 5. And then we shared in reference to the examined life from Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24. We also share with you from what's called the guided life from Psalm 25, verse 4 through 5 and verse 9 through 13. And today, we want to wrestle with another theme out of the Psalms. It's entitled, The Sanctuary Life. The Sanctuary Life. So grab your Bibles, let's read Psalm 73, verses 16 and 17, particularly Clause A, but I'll read the whole verse instead. All right, here's the word of the Lord. So I try to understand why the wicked prosper, but what a difficult task it is. Then I went into the sanctuary of God, and I finally understood the destiny of the wicked. Again, the title of this word is the sanctuary life. The sanctuary life. I want to throw out a few questions this morning that very well might be considered troubling. And it may challenge your perspective of where you are, but I want you to think in terms of perhaps why these questions are put forth and where they come from. We're going to wrestle with a context in which we're very familiar with, I think. The writer of this text comes to a very incredible conclusion after analyzing the context to which he looks out and see. And it's quite challenging for him and when you read Psalm 73, you, I think, can understand why these questions are raised in reference to how the outlook of this psalmist give us. Have you ever wondered if the Christian life is actually worth the reward to which we are promised in Scripture? If trying to live for God, does it really give us an advantage or does it prohibit us from really enjoying life? Does your giving to church really extract relief from the windows of heaven? Since I nor you have ever been to heaven or hell, are those destinations a reality or are they just mythology or mythological suggestions as have been suggested by many? Is there some benefit of living righteously or 
should I just and should you just live according to your own conscience and not be influenced by any particular book of Holy Scripture? And even though illegal activity can lead to some very detrimental conclusions, yet when you think about how we look at how white-collar crime works and how crime seems to work in some contexts, does it not yet suggest that it pays to steal a little bit or that it pays to extort from someone a little bit? or that we end up being beneficially by way of economics and even by politics or even by sociology. I want you to ask the question, why do bad people actually experience the good while good people actually experience the bad? We say that it pays to serve the Lord, but I, I want to ask you, does it? You may find these questions, <coughs> as I previously alluded to, a bit offensive and certainly taboo. According to Psalm 73, these are not taboo questions. They actually are not offensive as well. They are legitimate questions from a follower of Yahweh who's perplexed by what he is seeing. I must be honest, and I feel the tension in the soul of the person in Psalm 73. I feel him. His name is Asaph. Asaph, who is suffering from what one scholar suggests is a disease of myopia or myopia. Myopia is an eye disease that keeps one from seeing objects at a distance. They can see only what is immediately before them. And without the aid of glasses or contacts, they cannot see where they are going or what is on the distant horizon. A spiritual myopic, a spiritual myopic condition is arguably worse because the person can only see what is under their spiritual nose, that which is temporal, that which is physical that which is earthly, that which is composed in the here and now. Asaph is believed to be suffering from a severe case of spiritual myopic faith. Check this out. This gifted, this outstanding musician in the time of David, this appointed minister of music in the temple, this leader of the Levitical choir, this writer and composer, as some have suggested, of Psalm 73 all the way to Psalm 83, this servant of Yahweh who's experiencing defective vision because the front of his retina is comprehending problematic images. In layman's term, he's far-sighted. He can't see beyond what is immediately before him. He looked only at the temporal and he lost how to focus on the eternal and what lies ahead of him. <laughs> I can sense that there are those of us, I know I'm in this bunch, 
who can identify with Asaph's condition, we either have been or are in the current perplexing state that Asaph is mentioning in this text. That's the reason why I raised those questions because as much as we may try to suppress to suppress and suggest that those kind of questions does not whirl up in our spiritual life, let's be honest, we wrestle from time to time wondering as we look out and see how things are, see how the unjust seems to prosper more than the just, how the illegal seems to gain more ground than going in the legal state. How those who are practitioners of wrong seems to outdo, benefit, profit more than those who are practitioners of what is right. We've wrestled with this question and we've also asked the question of God, how, why? How do they succeed and why, most importantly, do you let them succeed? I know. Those of you who are overwhelmingly spiritual and you've never had those questions, I'm not mad at you. I just have to admit with you along with ASAP that I just have not been able to arrive at that level of spiritual plateau. It just hasn't worked out that way for me. I'm in conjunction and connection with ASAP because I feel this brother's tension in this text. I feel looking out. In fact, Asaph is not alone. Habakkuk raises the same question as he looks out and notice how the Chaldeans are profiting. Hosea, or should I say Jonah, Jonah in his own way raises this question. How can Nineveh succeed the way that it has and the righteous does not? I feel Asaph's tension. And yet Asaph provides for us several points in this text points that I want to emphasize and what eventually led him to find his answers and to find his liberation in what I call the sanctuary life. Now follow me if you will in the text. He starts out great. He starts out magnificent by saying in verse 1, surely God is good to Israel. That sounds wonderful because he says not just God is good to Israel, but come on, let's you and I connect with him. He's saying God is good to me. When we look at that text, we have to ask ourselves a question right now. Has God not been good to us? We've got so much to be thankful for. Asaph says, if you look at this thing, think about it. I'm eating well. I'm living well. My family is well. At least I still have a job. I've got a roof over my head. I can enjoy some of the extras of life. Asaph says, along with us, when I look at my context, I recognize that I'm blessed and highly favored. But says Asaph, when I look out, I find some problems. Something is not right. I just cannot connect the dots. It's not adding up for me. It's just not working out. And I want to share a couple of things with you. In fact, I'm going to share four things with you from this text because I think that Asaph wants us to recognize that there will be times, perhaps when you look out 
and you look around where you are and you look at the world to which you're a part of and you come to recognize, wait a minute, I'm trying to live the best that I can and do the right thing for God and yet rather than me making leaps of progress, I'm moving, only moving by the inch while those who are not doing the things of God nor respecting the righteousness of God, they're moving by leaps and bounds. And I'm wondering, what's this problem? Well, Asaph introduces us to the first problem that he comes upon in this text. He says that God is good, but look at the opening line of verse 2. But as for me, that's what I like. He, he centralizes and personalizes his own vision of what he sees. As for me. And the first thing I want to tell you is that when Asaph looks at his situation, he comes up with a disturbing problem. He comes up with a disturbing problem. It's disturbing because listen to what he says. He says, what I saw almost caused me to lose my relationship with God. I started to turn in my membership card because there was just not the adding up in my eyes when I looked at this situation. He says those who disregard God, those who only recognize God with their mouth but not with their heart, those who marginalize for the profit, those who push people to the margins just for making a profit, those who value profits over people, those who exploit without a conscience, those who do evil and continue to prosper, those who are unjust, those who conspire to be the head and not the tail, their lives seem to be blessed of God. And here I am, struggling praying every day, reading the word every day, believing every day, and yet I've often got more month than money. Promotions doesn't seem to be anywhere in sight for me. Progress just seems to be a word in my vocabulary, but not a reality. I, I know. I know we're trying to be critical. We're going to say it's something he's done, but I'm just trying to tell you, listen to this man's feelings. I know also there are those who suggest that you shouldn't pay attention to your feelings because this is a faith walk. Listen to me very clearly. Your feeling is a part of your composition. God gave that to you so that you can recognize when something doesn't feel right in your life. And this man says, I got a disturbing problem. When I look at how evil is prospering and righteousness, as I'm trying to do, doesn't prosper, I got a problem. And I think you and I are along those same lines as well. And says Asaph, I'm struggling because what I was taught was that the righteous, those who love God, should be experiencing that kind of life. And said Asaph, here's what he said, I got angry. I got angry and I employed a bitter spirit that brought me to the edge of throwing in the towel on God. I know, I know again, you've never experienced that. 
You've never come to a place where you've overwhelmingly been frustrated, where you didn't just want to give up and say, Lord, if this is all it is, I'm done with it. This is not for everybody. I got that. This is not for all of you. But there are a few of us, in which I'm included, who's experienced what Asaph is sharing. I have become so enraged at God and decided that this would be my last sermon because I'm trying to do the right thing and little to nothing seems to work in my favor. That's how I know I'm connected to Asaph. Listen to what he says in verse 2. He says, listen, as for me, I almost lost my salvation, almost lost my strength, almost lost my stability. Listen to what he says. My feet were slipping and I was almost gone. There it is right there in verse 2. I was almost gone. My feet were slipping because what I saw wasn't inspiring me. It was frustrating me. And maybe that's where you are right now. People just won't do right and yet their lives seems to catapult into joy. They seem to be blessed with everything that you can think of. In fact, when I look at what the writer says in this text, he says, I envy the proud when I saw them prosper despite their wickedness. I, I let my bitterness get the best of me. And I can give you the right religious answer by saying, don't let that happen. But Asaph is trying to warn us, when you keep seeing the unjust prosper, it piles up in your spirit. And so now Asaph could be wrestling, though, with a personal issue or... Maybe he is so angry because it's a social justice issue. He's looking out and discovering not only is his life, his life not prospering, but he's recognized that the unjust are participating in unjust righteousness in the sense of exercising the law. And they seem to be the only ones who get the benefit of the law. No equality. No such thing as justice for all. Instead, he looks out and sees the imbalance of life's material possessions and how the culture is treating human beings. And he asks the question in the words of Marvin Gaye, what's going on? Because he has this disturbing problem that's wailing up in his eyes and he doesn't know what to do with it. Is that where you are? What that did was lead to another thing, another problem in Asa's life. He not only had a disturbing problem, but the second thing is it created for him a distorted perspective. Listen to what he says and follow me in the text in verse 4 all the way to verse 12. Read them. And hear how his distortions come about. He says in verse 4, they seem to live painless lives. <laughs> he says when I look at them, there doesn't ever, to see, ever seem to be a pain that occurs in their life. I think underneath that he knows that that's impossible. That they too have their moments of pain. 
But when you become frustrated and you lose focus and you're suffering from myopic kind of spiritual blindness, you can only see what's before you. And he said they seem to only live painless lives. Look at clause B of verse 4. He also says their bodies are healthy and strong. Here I am living right, and what do I have? I have the challenge of all kinds of health issues, and they are destructive with their bodies. They treat, it, treat them any kind of way. Eat whatever they want to do, smoke whatever they want to smoke, drink whatever they want to drink, do whatever they want to do in terms of drugs, and yet nothing really happens to them. I know we're saying that if they continue to do that, that something will, but... Asip, probably along with us, can also probably testify. We've known folk who've done that all their lives and nothing ever happened. But you and I do that, there's a problem very quickly. That's Asip's perspective. They're, they seem to have bodies that are healthy and strong. Look at verse 5. They don't have trouble like other people. Now, he is suggesting that their lives doesn't flow from the same experience of nature like other people. Even the wealthy who now live in Northern California can tell you we are suffering from the fires just like anyone else who has a fire in their community and it spreads. But, but Asaph says, no, they, they don't live like other people. They not only live large, but they don't have the troubles like others. And in some respects, he's probably correct. Wealth and power does buy you an advantage to which you don't have to encounter some sociological misfits to which we may have to encounter in other contexts. But it's still a bit of a distortion for Asaph because he's suggesting that their life is devoid of trouble. Look what he says in verse 8 and 9. Their words seem to have power. I would contend that probably bothers him more probably than anything else because when they speak the world stops and values what they say and even though what they say has no philosophical grounding at all, has no, no foundational makings for it. It's empty. It's void. And yet when they speak everyone listens. Look what he says in verse 9. They boast against the very heavens. And their words struck throughout the earth. <laughs> Asaph says, not only do they talk and it has no merit, but they get the opportunity to have a reality show, get paid for what they're saying. And Asaph says something's wrong. Look at what he says in verse 10. He says their actions are more persuasive than God. Asaph says, here I am serving the God of all creation and the words of God that I believe are true and yet when we speak it, it doesn't come to pass. And when they speak, it happens just like that. Look what he says in verse 11. They mock God because God is silent in this whole experience. 
Now, I, I tell you, I'm right there with Asep right now. I'm right there with him because I keep asking myself the question. It's two questions I keep asking God. I haven't got an answer yet. Lord, what have we done as a people of African descent to be hated so much by those who are of European Caucasian descent? What, what have we done to them? And secondly, God, what have we done so bad that you let what happens to us for the last 400 years continue to happen? See, I'm, I'm there with Asaph because Asaph is saying, as I'm saying, God is silent. When I read the Bible, I read God intervening on behalf of Israel when anyone threatens their existence, anyone mistreats them and misuses them, unless he's using them to do that, he annihilates, destroys them. And I'm asking God, where are you in the midst of where we are now? We've been crying out black lives matter since our existence in this country. And yet God is silent and Asaph says they mock God and that leads him to his third problem and I say those problems are distorted because they're not the whole story it leads him to his third problem though because in this myopic experience of not being able to see beyond only what's before him he not only has a distorted problem or a distorted perspective and he not only has what I initially called a disturbing problem but now he's experiencing a debilitating pain. Listen to what he says in verse 12. Look at these wicked people enjoying a life of ease while their riches multiply did I not keep my heart pure for nothing did I not keep my innocence for no reason at all listen to what he says I get nothing but trouble all day long every morning brings me pain Verse 15, if I had really spoken this way to others, I would have been a traitor to your people. Notice what he says. He says, I notice that things only get worse. The intensity of his pain is increasing. Each year, he says, the wicked gets more prosperous while the righteous keep on just chuckling along. It appears that every scripture that I value is actually applicable, but it seems to be going in the opposite direction. Here's what Asaph is saying. Where's my increase? Where's my house? Where's my car? Where's my stock portfolio? Where's my retirement check? Where's my job promotion? Where's my bonus check? Where's my marriage proposal? Where's my dream wife or dream husband? I'm giving myself to God and is this all I get in return? This leads to another answer that he gets. 
This leads to that fourth answer that suggests that maybe something is beginning to change in his perception. He says in verse 16, he says, I tried, I tried to understand why the wicked prosper, but what a difficult task it is. In other words, I can't make the dots connect. I can't seem to understand everything that's going on. I just don't understand, God, why you keep letting this happen, and more importantly, why you are silent in the midst of my tears and my storm. And Asap runs us from an interesting space. He runs us from his disturbing problem to his distorted perspective to his debilitating pain. And now he says something in verse 17, clause A. Couldn't figure it out, kept wrestling with it in verse 16, he says. But then I had a dawning perception. Verse 17, just clause A. Then I went into the sanctuary of God and I finally understood the destiny of the wicked. Here's what he, had, here's what he says. Perhaps, I want to contend, perhaps something informed him that you've provided your own analysis, Asa, You've had perhaps consulted with all of the sources that you wanted to consult with. You, you've asked your most perplexing questions and it has not yet yielded you a satisfying answer. You have perhaps heard by way of agreement from many others who concurred with your observation and they are likewise hoping that you can provide the answer that they've been trying to find but it keeps escaping their grip as well and you've heard also the response of some who seem to tell you over and over again Asif stop tripping over this and pay attention to your life Maybe Asaph is trying to give us, or they, his friends, were trying to give him an indirect way. Stop tripping over what you see. What you see ain't everything. And on top of that, you don't know what's going on behind the scenes. Pay attention to your own life. And when you do that, that's a lot of work in itself. Paying attention to my own self. For he tells us in the sense that his possible exhaustion, that's what verse 16 says, I'm just exhausted in trying to figure out what God is doing and I can't find an answer on my own. So, I tried to understand the wicked, why they prosper. It's a difficult task. Perhaps, perhaps, I'm just suggesting, perhaps it dawned on Asaph. He had to take a historical journey back to the past. His grandmother and his grandfather, who were deacon and deaconess, used to run into similar problems, and they, they did something different. They didn't cry out in the sense of anger to God. Even his mom and his daddy had some tough days, and when the going got tough, mama and them, not mom and daddy, mama and them, couldn't wait until they got to church on Sunday morning. They would wait for that altar call and join hands with others believing that they may know that they may not know how and when God would work it out but laying it on the altar 
at the church gave them some hope and when they left church, they left with a different mindset. I just believe there's somebody out there today that you've walked in Asa's shoes, but when you got to church, you recognized after listening to the hymn and listening to the spiritual of the choir and listening to the prayer that if you just lay that thing at the altar of God, you may not be able to figure it out. You're not going to be able to do it to add all the dots up. You can't cross all the T's and dot all the I's. But somehow, God, I know you're going to work this thing out for my good because verse 17 tells me that Asaph says, I got tired of trying to figure this thing out alone by myself, so I went into the sanctuary and I laid that thing down before God. This is why you can't miss church. We may not be in a physical space, but you can't miss this virtual experience because God's got an answer to your perplexing problem, but you got to show up to get the answer. And that's why we got to enter into the sanctuary, into the space of worship with thanksgiving and expectation, with anticipation, knowing that God is able and God will do it. Lift that burden from your shoulders. Take Solomon's wisdom. Stop trying to figure out everything about God. I'm doing that. It's not going to help. You're not going to figure out everything about God. It's not meant to. But there is something about having to have to trust when you can't see. And maybe that's what God is doing in the midst of your life and mine now. God will do something to us when we come into the sanctuary. Let me just say a couple more things and then I'm done. Listen to what happens. He came into that sanctuary and I'm convinced that God did some work on Asaph that caused him to recognize that I'm not going to always deliver you out of a problem. I'm not going to always deliver you through a problem. I may just let you stay in the problem so you can recognize from whom all blessings flow in the midst of the problem. God Almighty. So look what happens, I think. But Asa went into the sanctuary. God reconstructed him. He reconstructed his feelings. No more bitterness. No more anger. When he looked out and saw the wicked prospering, he didn't let it bother him anymore. God said, let that go. No more feelings of being bitter, but instead God did something with his focus. Take your eyes and look unto the hills from whence come your help. And he reconstructs not only where he's looking, but he reconstructs his faith by telling him your faith is not in what you see of the people. Your faith is in the God who sits in the portals of glory and yet works in the midst of your life. And that's what God is telling you right now. In the sanctuary life, God is going to reconstruct your feelings, your focus, and your faith. The second thing I think that what happened to him when he came to the sanctuary, God not only reconstructed him, but God reconnected him. Reconnected him to the promise. What promise? God has made it clear to us through Paul in the Philippian letter that he will supply all of our needs according to his riches and glory. 
and that he will give us the desires of our heart and that he will keep us in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on him. And they that wait on the Lord shall have strength renewed and trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean out into your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your path. It's the promise that God makes that he has to reconnect us from time to time because we become disconnected by looking at stuff out there. He not only reconnected him to his promise, but he had to reconnect him to his power. He had to help Asaph understand, like you and I, that your power is not in what you see people have. Your power is in the provision that God gives. It's not what they have. That temporal aspect of their existence doesn't help you live every day. You live often in eternal promise. They that trust in the Lord should not only have their strength renewed, but mount up with wings like eagles. That's a promise, but that's power. We soar beyond what you see in the temporal because there's something grandeur in the eternal. And then God reconnects him to the promise, I mean to the purpose. He has a purpose. There's a reason why Asaph saw what he saw. And I want to suggest that he saw it because the purpose is he's not the only one that sees in that perspective. And just as God helped him, helps us to help others to not put their confidence in what they see in human beings. And then here's the last point, I'm done. God had to reemphasize to Asaph that his hope and his help and his happiness was not in a man, was not in stuff, but was in the matchless grace and mercy of God. And so Asaph says in verse 17, when I went into the sanctuary, then I understood the destiny of the wicked. The cloudy vision was finally cleared up for me and that's God's message for someone who's suffering with a myopic vision this morning, go to church, get in the sanctuary, and permit God to clear up your vision, reconstruct you, reconnect you, and reemphasize to you the truth of the matter. And that is that what you see is only temporal, for their reward is where it is right now. That's not where your reward is. It's in a space of eternity. Because that's the joy that we get in the sanctuary life. Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. For you are indeed our strength and our redeemer. Consecrate this moment in which these words have gone forth and that someone will come to know Jesus Christ today as Lord and Savior. Help those of us who are believers to clear up our vision in this moment in which we contemplate and struggle with what we see. Help us, Lord, to keep our eyes on you that we may walk in the path of righteousness for your name's sake. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.
It's my prayer, it's our prayer as a congregational life this morning that this day is a new day for you. And I challenge you not to look out and judge your journey based off of what you see others possess. But be grateful as we're entering to this season of Thanksgiving. Be grateful for that which you already possess. It does not yet appear what you shall be, says John. And I believe with all my heart, the best is always yet to come. We've got to persevere, go through, and there is always victory on the other side. It's my prayer today also that if you've never made a decision for Jesus Christ, this is the day that you will begin a new life and a simple prayer. Lord, I want to be saved by your grace and washed in your blood. I want my name written in the Lamb's book of life. I want to know what it means to be born again. I accept your son, Jesus Christ, as my Lord and Savior. Hey, Romans 10, verse 9 and 10, and verse 17 says that today will be the new perspective of your life. It will never be the same. You are saved by God's grace. I hope that's your experience. And if it is, if you would just give our church a call and just let us know that, hey, I have got a new start, a new focus in life. God is going to give me a new perspective. We're going to rejoice with you because we want to be a part of your life as we want you to be a part of this church family. We also say thank you, those of you who have been so kind in supporting us with your gifts and your tithes and offerings. Thank you. We encourage you to continue to give us your support as well. You enable us to do ministry, and we certainly don't take that for granted. Hey, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us continue to rejoice and be glad within it. This is Pastor Murphy saying, make sure you always remember God loves you, and so do I. Have a blessed, wonderful week in the Lord. Amen. Working, As we come to the close of our worship experience, Zion, let us grab our communion elements and let's come together around the table that we might break bread together. The Bible says that Jesus took bread and he looked into heaven and gave thanks for it. And then he gave it to his disciples as they did eat together. Let us eat together.
Likewise, it says he took the cup and looked unto heaven and gave thanks for it. And then he gave it to his disciples as they did drink together. Let us drink together. When they had finished, they sung a hymn and went into the Mount of Olives. Let's leave this moment of virtual worship rejoicing that we've had a chance to break bread together and commune one with another. We look forward to having a wonderful experience of a week that's going to be blessed and mightily empowered by God. We expect the same for you as well. Have a blessed week in the Lord. Oh,